Welcome to Dave and Dom Demystify, a fintech futures podcast, helping make sense of the world of fintech and digital finance. Please sit back and listen as the two Ds take a subject and discuss it to make it clearer and easier to understand. Welcome everybody to today's show and today we are welcoming Dave Jarvis or David Jarvis from Griffin. Welcome David. Do you want to give us a brief introduction to yourself and a bit about what you do? Yeah, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I am the CEO and co-founder of Griffin. We are the UK's only full-stack banking-as-a-service bank. I think we're no longer the UK's baby bank. I think a couple others have been authorized since us, but we are very young, having received our uh, license in March of this year, 23. And my background prior to this is basically being a nerd in West Coast Silicon Valley startups. So mostly doing development infrastructure work at companies like CircleCI, Samarin, Airbnb, but also working for an early banking as a service firm called Standard Treasury, which was both in the business of providing API solutions to banks and then later building out its own core as it looks to try to become a bank itself, unfortunately, successfully. And so I worked on the core banking team there, which is one of the things that, I don't know, got rid of my fear of core banking systems. Although I think over the last couple of years, I've reacquired the fear. Um, (laughs) They're not for the faith of heart. So that's me in a nutshell. So, so, I mean, I have to ask, how did you go from the West Coast to Blighty? Mm-hmm. So a short, easy answer, which is that mum's British, right? Okay. And then there's a, a longer answer. You know, so what exactly brought me here, which was that early banking as a service experience left me with a very high and clear conviction that there was a tremendous market opportunity, but that if you were trying to solve it only as a technology provider, you certainly were not going to achieve venture scale returns. And in general, there are a bunch of kind of structural weaknesses to that business model. The challenge then being, okay, well, if you want to be a bank and run a technology forward bank in the space, the US is probably not the right jurisdiction to get started. And so it was Monzo's authorization that really activated me to the UK because I looked across the pond and saw like, those guys look like a bunch of nerds. I'm a nerd. (laughs) Mom's English. Like, might as well give that a go there. Fantastic. I mean, people like Elon Musk have backed our banking. So, I mean, it's a big step forward for you to come into banking, I guess. No? Or No, I think one of the things that Alan, my co-founder, and I have really high conviction in is that a lot of the like low-hanging fruit in the technology sector is gone. Because for most of the last 15 years, the sort of rapid pace of digitization plus the advent of mobile meant that anyone who threw money at the internet was pretty much guaranteed to make some money. And I'm not saying that that's no longer the case, but a lot of the low-hanging fruit is gone. And so the places where that kind of true digitization has not yet reached tend to be complex, regulated sectors. And so this quote from this bodybuilder, I can't remember what his name is, but he goes, everybody wants to be a bodybuilder, but nobody wants to lift no heavy-ass weights, but I'll do it. So yeah, Alan and I are are here to lift some heavy ass weights. Wow. I mean, it's a big undertaking to get a full license. I mean, how long did the process take you? So we had our first conversation with the PRA in November of 2019. So we submitted our application in February of 22, and we were authorized in February of 23. So two and a half, three years, three and a bit years. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, that in the grand scheme of things, that's very quick compared to what it, how long it used to take, right? Because the Bank of England definitely has started to make things much easier and provide much more support. But I guess you said you were the first full stack BAS provider. What do you think is missing in other players to kind of make that claim? So I think a lot of the, you have these two tiers, right? So you've got lots of BAS players who don't have bank licenses, who generally can provide quite comprehensive technology solutions, but ultimately they tend to just be offering EMI uh, and, and electronic money accounts. They're not offering true bank accounts. And then when you look at the true bank players, they're able to do accounts and payments, but it's often a very thin technology offering where you're on the hook to build out a ledger, build out all this financial crime infrastructure, regulatory reporting infrastructure, like all of the supporting infra that you need to actually run the product. And so no one else is offering that kind of really unified experience in one place where you're getting fully fledged accounts, direct kind of payment system access, essentially, as well as like essentially a core banking system integrated into that as part of the proposition. Wow. And then what about like, how granular are the services that you provide? Could I, if I wanted just to not open an account, but just credit risk somebody, could I send you some data and... I think eventually, yes. So credit risk is not something that we do currently. It's on the roadmap for us. Um, But if you wanted to just get financial crime tooling for KYC, KYB, that is something like we could do for you without needing for you to be a, a customer of the bank per se. We tend to prioritize because we are as a new entrant we are being pretty picky about who we work with we tend to prioritize people who want to work with us as a bank and for us the sort of financial crime tooling is more about what that enables in terms of the people who want to use us as a banking partner like we're willing to sell the financial crime tooling on a standalone basis but frankly it doesn't make very much money it's really mostly about delivering value to the customers who are using us as a bank because it enables us to work more closely together and it's a better customer experience for them so who are some of the companies that you're working with to deliver banking products? I can't name all of them, but I'll, I'll give one because we've, we've talked pretty openly about this. So we're working with um, a business called Hanley, which is a kind of vertical SaaS play that does essentially provides a software platform for estate agents and other residential property managers. And rental payments are one of the key use cases and key features of that platform. So pay-ins and payouts on the kind of managed residential lettings. One of the things that's really interesting about this space is that in the UK, residential lettings and and rental payments must go through a commercial bank. They can't go through some other non-bank PSP. And so immediately we've constrained the the competition space to us and the high street banks, but the high street banks will not offer you an API for this by and large. And so if you want to provide a software platform that you're then reselling into every estate agent in the country having you know web dashboard access for a Barclays client money account is not helpful. You need it to have API access so that it can be hooked into the underlying platform. It's fascinating. I wanted to go back to the whole process of getting a license. I mean, in terms of the process itself, did you feel like you were kind of helped through the process? Was it- Yes. I guess I'm really interested in the openness of the regulators in the UK to new banking entrants. So, I mean, Darmish says it was relatively quick in terms of the process, but... Definitely didn't feel that way. I mean, and, and again, it's, it's, it's worth keeping in mind, right? Like when we went through the process, like our comp, our, like our comparables were Monzo and Starling, who had done it end to end in 18 months. 
And so the bar has gone up quite dramatically, actually, in terms of like relative to 2015, 2017, in terms of what the regulators are willing to allow through. That having been said, I mean, gosh, like it is, um, they have this kind of team that they call the, the new bank startup unit, and they have a dedicated website for it, and they walk you through everything, right? It's like, okay, this is what the process looks like. First, we're going to look at this, then we're going to look at this, then we're going to look at this. We're going to do these in sequence. So we'll look at it, provide feedback. You'll be invited to submit a, like a, a, an amended version. We'll provide as much feedback, maybe one or two rounds, unless we're really concerned that it's not satisfactory. And we'll let you know when we think it's at a level of quality that is acceptable to us. And we'll do that by phases, right? So first of all, you have a, this kind of initial coffee date, right? Just hi. Here's who we are. Here's what we're looking to do. Here's how we're going to fund it. Pretty casual. And then they, if there's no red flags there, and, and often there are, right? They, like, like a lot of firms will fall over immediately here because actually what they'll come in and, and describe to the regulators is like a payments business. And the regulators are like, well, you don't need to be a bank to do this. Like you can just get a payments license. Like, and by the way, we would strongly encourage you to do that instead because that'll be way easier for you. But if you are really talking about running a bank, They'll say, okay, great, thank you. The next step would be for you to submit a regulatory business plan or RBP. And this is, it's funny because our, the chairman of our board built out an investment bank in the early 2000s. We still had the CD-ROM with his RBP on it. And it's like 85 pages double-spaced. And like our RBP is 450 pages single-spaced. <laughs> so like it gives you some, some sense for like the, I don't know. I mean, first of all, like investment banks and, and retail banks are very different beasts, but also like the degree to which um, the standard that you're expected to work to. And that, that regulatory business plan covers everything, right? I mean, so what are your products and services? How are you going to market them? What's the kind of governance structure of the business? How are you going to finance it? What do you think the major risks are? What are your financial plans? Blah, blah, blah. The next two things that you work through are capital and liquidity, which obviously are the two things that kill banks. So they're what you get regulated for. And so again, a lot of financial modeling then you end up with this kind of resultant document that both is a, a plan, but also walks through how you stress tested these different things. Once you get to the end of this process, they basically say, okay, cool. We don't have any further feedback for you on the core documents. And they used to invite you to submit at that point. They don't like that language anymore because they don't, they don't want to imply anything, but they'll say like, we have no further feedback. And so if, and when you're ready to submit, like we're here. And that is, it's not like a green light in like the full sense of the term, but there's trying to signal to you at that point that like they have some reasonable level of conviction that if you put an application in that they will end up saying yes. And part of the reason for this whole process is to make sure that you don't invest a ton of time and energy and put in an application that's just completely dead on arrival. Then the application itself, in addition to having these kind of three core documents that you workshopped with them, will include a raft of supplementary material, all of your policies, procedures, terms of reference, details on the individuals who are going to fill these roles, anyone who's holding a senior management function that the regulators view as particularly critical needs to be interviewed, approved individually. That basically is, is kind of it. And then you enter, generally, you enter mobilization at that point or authorization restrictions if they give you a thumbs up on the other end. Oh, and you have to time capital with all of this, by the way, which is great. So you went just to full banking line straight away. You didn't kind of set up uh, just a payments capability first because I thought they like to see your systems up and running before they give out a full license. 
is that no longer the case? Maybe it may be just the uh, companies that I kind of experienced before, but um, yeah, I don't think that's their position. So the, the the point of kind of mobilization or authorization with restrictions is to give you that time to test out your systems without having a big bang moment. I don't know that they love the idea of going on a kind of intermediate step of being a PI or an EMI on your way to becoming a bank. And, and I think the reason for that is ultimately they want you to only have the regulatory permissions that are actually relative to your business. And I also, this is like just my instinct on policy, right? There's no policy document to this effect, but I've come to believe that the UK, that the Bank of England has really soured on electronic money institutions generally. The bar for getting one has gone up a tremendous amount. And every time you get a new policy position or policy paper out of the FCA, certainly, if you kind of read between the lines, they're just like, can you guys not like just stop fucking this up? <laughs> and also, if I'm being like very honest, I think the other part of it is like the electronic money regime is just confusing. Like it's just really confusing in terms of like, what is electronic money? Like, why is this not a bank deposit? Like people don't, normal human beings do not realize that Revolut is not a bank. Like they do not understand what electronic money is because electronic money is a non-obvious, like weird legal regulatory instrument. I guess on the technology side of things, what's your definition of like a modern core banking stack? What does it look like versus... Because my perspective is that the generation one modern core was simply a migration to a microservices architecture. And that the gen two has taken much more of a Baz view of this and said, well, actually, it's not about breaking up the monolith into a set of services and making it more scalable on modern technology, faster deployments, blah, blah, blah. But it's actually about making those individual services available and doing more than just bank accounts, et cetera. And in that space, then, you know, you start to think of more of a composable architecture. What's your view on this? I have to confess that I, I find the kind of like lingo of composable architecture to be bullshit. <laughs> like, because at, at the end of the day, right, like there are yeah. certain, what is a core banking system? It's a bunch of like non-negotiables, like the ledger and the fundamental customer identity system, which you, you cannot compose away, right? They've got to be there. And then you do have the kind of like these product modules or whatever you want to call them. And in our case, one of the things that I, I come back to a lot on this is just that like our customers have a stupid number of use cases, but our job is actually to provide a fairly small surface area for them. Like ultimately it's just bank accounts and payments. And the customer then might go on and use that to deploy it into wealth, you know, residential property, like salary finance, any number of kind of applications, but we don't need to build that. That's, that's on them. So our core is quite lean, actually. And then I think the thing that is interesting for us and I think gives us a lot of flexibility for the future is the fact that we designed it as an event-driven system to begin with. Because then rather than having these different systems calling each other, it's just there's just a flow of information and anyone can subscribe to the information and do what they want with the events that are flowing through that. And that then makes it easy for us to build kind of extensible stuff later that we might not necessarily have anticipated at the time would want to be listening to things happening in the ledger, listening to things happening in the customer event system or the customer information system. I mean, in terms of going back to 
the process of license, I presume you were building at the same time. So there was a yeah. bunch of parallel processes which were going yeah. on. So, I mean, how kind of as a startup do you manage? Because that seems like actually there's a huge amount that you're having to do all at one time in order to get to the point where you get the nod and you can go for So how do you kind of manage that? I'm just fascinated because this seems like layers of complexity upon layers of complexity, which I'm guessing a lot of startups actually don't have to be thinking about. I think this probably is where my like prior experience came in handy, where I, I knew what the architecture, the business logic architecture of the core was going to look like immediately. And so we we're already starting from a place of having a fairly clear idea of what the business logic of this was, the actual architectural logic of how we made it event-driven in a way that was scalable and easy for developers to get ramped up quickly on and all of that has been a longer journey for us. And finding the right pieces of technology to plug into that that worked well has also been a challenge. But to be honest with you, yeah, it is, it is really messy and complex to have these two distinct and yet equally complex like things going on at the same time. Equally complex and equally expensive. But one of the things that I really believe is that like real moats are not cheap and we have two, right? Which is that like we own the core and we built it all ourselves and we built it for purpose and we have the bank license. And yeah, it's taken us years to do both, but now we're in this position where we have these two really defensible assets. So, so then actually getting the thing up and running is that's complex in itself, but then you've got the product, which you are then going out and the proposition which you then go and need to sell to the market. And I guess you're having to do a number of things, which is create market opportunity. So you talk about the residential market. Were people coming to you or were you going to them basically and saying? Yeah, this is, you've unfortunately stumbled upon something that I like, this is one of my, like my mini rants, I guess, these days. So I think one of the things that has been going on in the embedded finance space over the last five years has been, people trying to make a future happen. And I don't think you ever want to be in a position where you're trying to manifest a reality by hoping or making a bunch of people change their existing behavior. And so there are two other quotes that kind of like I trot out at this point. So one is like, I don't want to sell to someone who's not buying. And so I'm not on the outside knocking on the door. You've come to me and said, I need a safeguarding account or I have a safeguarding account and I'm not enjoying my bank. Great. <laughs> like you are in the market for what I'm selling. Awesome. Right. <laughs> and then the other part of this is our job is not to see the future. It's to see the present and it's to see the present with a clarity that other people don't have. And so part of what led us down this path in the first place was having worked at a business now, like almost 10 years ago, where we saw what the market demand was for this. And it was not for people to have for, for every high street brand to have a prepaid card. The applications were very specific and they were generally for like industries that are mature and at scale, like for instance, like payroll processing. It's like, okay, cool. Like makes total sense why you would want like a large amount of kind of programmatic infrastructure and the ability to hook into a bank if you're processing payroll for like 50,000 companies. Like that makes just a whole bunch of basic sense. And then when I look at the embedded finance space, there's been a tremendous amount about card issuing kind of prepaid card issuing for high street brands or like, you know, digital wallets for high street brands. I'm like, how many hubs, how many financial hubs do you need? Does a consumer need, does a business need? Not many, like low single digits at best, right? 
And so I just don't think that is like what people want today. And so I don't think that is going to be the future. Whereas like the use cases that we power fundamentally pretty much always boil down into payments or wealth. We're doing one of those two things. And it's like, neither of these is new. They always need banks. Like it's very straightforward. And that I think really helps us to streamline our understanding of where we sit in all of this as well. So, I mean, again, it's, it's really, because I guess you kind of almost alluded to it, but are you looking at the gaps which kind of exist that the high street banks are not fulfilling and kind of lining yourself up to those gaps or those problems? Very specifically, right, the customers that we sell into, they're seeking a solution to a pain point that their customers are not aware of. And so like the estate agent knows that he needs a client money account in order to handle residential payment, property payments. He's like, oh, I'm going to buy from these guys who have the CRM with a rental payment solution that's compliant. But like, I don't know anything about like what's actually going on under the hood or how that all works. All, all I know is I want to be able to take rental payments and like pay them out, right? And, and like take a fee. Or anyone who works with like Stripe or PayPal or, or any kind of big payment providers, like they just don't think about the fact that like when money gets sent to your Stripe account, like it's actually going to like an account in like Barclays, right? Really, it just has the Stripe name on the top. And there's like a sub account that's hopefully for free, like you are merchant, right? And so there aren't that many banks that do this to begin with. Those that do mostly do it poorly. And so our job is really to just provide these kind of like basic building blocks that enable these other businesses to provide vetted financial services. And those building blocks are so like the scope for those building blocks is really quite small. Again, like in the UK, we're basically just doing safeguarding client money and like white labeled interest-bearing savings accounts. And those three, and the white labeled interest-bearing savings accounts, you need to be regulated. It kind of doesn't even matter what your business is. Like if you want to have that play, great. But like for safeguarding and client money, you're coming to us because you are a regulated payment firm or regulated electronic money institution, or you're a regulated wealth firm. And you know that your money has to be custodied with a bank and you know that you want to have a programmatic interface to do that. And so you end up coming to us. But then the actual use case that you have can be quite varied, right? So you could be doing neobanking, you could be doing cross-border payments, you could be doing residential property, you could be doing wealth. Like there's a whole bunch of different use cases there. And we're pretty agnostic as long as it's within our risk appetite as to like what exactly you're doing, so long as the kind of basic building blocks we're providing enable it. So for your clients, let's say, you know, in the case of the estate agents, if something went wrong with an account, God forbid, what happens? I mean, you have to unpeel that one a little bit because like what something went wrong with the account is like, what if you get hacked? And it's like, well, getting hacked isn't actually like a specific thing. You know what I mean? Like someone can gain access to your production database. That's a real thing. Like someone can bring your systems offline. That's also a real thing. So like, let's make it tangible. That went through and it was deemed to be like, oh, this looks quite dodgy. It's going to. So in, in our case, we, I mean, we would pick that up to begin with, right? Because we have the systems to monitor it. Even if we didn't, we would be a liable party. Right, right, right. No, I get the liability, but it's who does the communication to the client. So your account's locked because of the transaction that, you know, the bank has picked up. Well, that's illegal. That's tipping off. So we, yeah, you, yeah. no, no one's sending that message. Have <laughs> <laughs> you been banking with Darmish? <laughs> yeah. You're saying it like, oh, sorry, we've had to freeze your account. We'll let you know when we can unfreeze it. Yeah. Yeah. Like, no, I'm just thinking, I'm just thinking like in the case of like, I mean, this has happened obviously with quite in the press with Monzo accounts, right? They've, 
Yeah. I, by the way, for like, I'm, I think the tipping off regulations are stupid. Like either they're a criminal and they know immediately or they're not a criminal and it's a horrible customer experience. It serves no one. But who is it responsible for that experience? That's what I'm asking is like, yeah, no, I think that's a great question. So generally it is our customer who is responsible for managing the customer communications because we don't want to interpose our brand between like into that product experience. At the same time, there are cases in which we do have to get involved, right? So like if we're doing embedded white labeled savings accounts and the account owner dies, this does kick it over into like a process that the bank needs to manage in terms of their relatives, descendants being able to get access to those funds. That's not something that we want the platform to be managing the process for. This is where the rubber really meets the road. And there are an infinite number of ways in which human beings and money can need like a little bit of an escape hatch. And if it touches anything that has a serious regulatory process attached to it, it's likely to roll up to us. Okay, cool. Just one thing. I've got to ask this because you have eloquently gone from being like technical to business person to understanding the regulations and banking. Wow, how do you do it? Like, are you still hands-on from the technology side of things? Or? No, 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 no. About, about, I think it was like four or five years ago, I expressed an opinion about how we should design things. And Alan was like, when was the last time you wrote any code? That's what I thought. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, I still have, I would like to say, some level of taste, perhaps. But no, I'm, I'm definitely not hands-on. And then, yeah, I mean, as for the rest of it, like it goes back to what I said about the like Monzo story. Like, I'm just a nerd, man. I just, I love to learn. It's all interesting to me. One of the things that I think comes with being a founder is that like anything that is relevant to your business becomes interesting just by virtue of your passion for the thing that you're doing. And so I'm really happy to just roll my sleeves up and go snuffle around like a truffle pig in the FCA handbook to understand the regs and rules that apply to me. Wow. I'm deeply impressed. I mean, your ability, like I say, to go from regs to just basic banking operations to the tech is fantastic. And and you make it sound so easy. So that's my job. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's it's so interesting. So thank you so much for your time. Thank you both. You know, in half an hour, I feel like I've, yeah, it's got me really thinking about the whole thing. So thank you. It's been brilliant. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thank you for tuning in to Dave and Darm Demystify. We hope you enjoyed the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe and tune in next time as we take another topic and demystify it.